holiness and the proper response. And here's what I want you to think about as we walk through this text this morning. Most of us in here are familiar with this. We've heard this read. We've heard it preached on. We've read it ourselves. Here's what I want us to think about as we walk through this passage. This holy God, who's above all in purity and power and majesty and glory, and whatever other adjective you can think of, this is the God who humbled Himself and came for you. The holy, high, exalted God came down from the glory of heaven and lived for you, died for you, and rose from the dead that you could be forgiven of your sins. This is our God this morning when we read about Him. Verses 1-4, through four, if you're looking at your handout, you see God enthroned in His holiness and His glory. God enthroned in His holiness <clears throat> excuse me, and His glory. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Verse 1 sets the context for us, the historical context. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died. So what does that tell us? The king's dead. The ruler is dead. It's a time of political instability. When the leader dies, people get anxious. People get nervous. The future seems uncertain. And it is at this time, God in His sovereignty, God gives the prophet Isaiah a vision, a vision of the Lord enthroned, a vision of the true king. Can you imagine the mindset of the people? We've lost our king. The people of God are, are wondering. Uncertainty and stability. And God in His sovereignty shows the prophet of the people this vision and says, here's your king. Behold Him. But that's not all this vision is. It's also a vision of worship, of heavenly worship. In verse 1, Isaiah says, The Lord is seated upon the throne. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. The picture here is this. He's sovereign. He rules in power. Isaiah says the Lord was high and lifted up. This is the vision that he saw of God. These words indicate the majesty and the greatness of God. Isaiah says he saw the Lord. He saw Him sovereign. He saw Him supreme, ruling in power. Isaiah saw God majestic and great. And who has just died? The leader, the king. And people are in despair. They're, they're uncertain. And God in His grace and His sovereignty and His love, He comes to their prophet and says, Behold your king. Here's the one you look to. You see this picture that God gives of Himself to Isaiah to proclaim to the people? Majestic, holy, glorious, high, lifted up, powerful. Have you ever looked at something extremely large and felt so small and insignificant? You ever done that? I remember I went to the Grand Canyon. When I saw the Grand Canyon for the first time, man, I felt small. I thought, my goodness, look at this. Never mind the fact that when I, once I got up there and saw it, I started backing up. Because I'm, I'm, I'm not a heights person. And the further I could get away from the edge, the better off I was. People walking up close to the edge just made me, I began to sweat because other people were getting, I thought, too close. And it was enormous. It was, this, it was this grand and glorious thing. And I felt so small. You see the picture that God has given Himself to the prophet to give to the people. And here's what I want us to think about. We're too great in our own eyes, people. We're too great in our own eyes. And I'm not just talking about people in general. I'm talking about us, the people of God. We're too great in our own eyes. A true vision of our Lord should humble us. 
What Isaiah's view of God does to him, it should do the same to us. There's a response to this holiness that it's going to be coming toward the end here. In verse 1 it says, notice here, it just keeps going on, showing us how glorious God is. It says, "In the train of His robe filled the temple. Um, train refers to the hem of a robe. That's what that's talking about. Uh, related to the dress or wedding dress of a bride, okay? Everybody been to a wedding at least once? Bride comes in, dress, long train, right? Imagine a bride coming in this building, the train of her dress having to be carried by so many people that we have to lay it up in the choir loft and we have to move it around the room and move it around this side and bring it down the aisle, throw it over the pews, and it fills the church building up. That would be a train, would it not? It filled the building. It covered the seats and the choir loft. It was all one piece. It wasn't pieced together. It was just one piece, this glorious train. The train of a ruler's robe in in biblical times or in the Old Testament times indicated the measure of his status. The longer the train, the more what? The more pomp and circumstance, the greater he was thought to be. The Lord's robe comes over the edge of his throne and down into the sanctuary and fills the temple where he's seated. God's robe fills the entire temple. It means that God's incomparable. He's unmatched without equal majesty. Excuse me. And listen, here's what I want you to understand. The temple here, listen to this, is not the temple in Jerusalem. That's not the temple it's talking about. Solomon says this. This is the heavenly temple. This is not the temple in Jerusalem, but it's the, the heavenly temple. In 2 Chronicles chapter 2, verse 6, here's what Solomon says, But who is able to build him a house? Since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him. Who am I to build a house for him except as a place to make offerings before him? In Acts chapter 7, Stephen says, The Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. This is not a temple. This is not a confined space. This is the heavenly temple. It's the, it's the glory of heaven and God's train fills what? The whole place. The glory and the majesty of God. And here's what you and I to be thinking. These images point us to the majesty of God in order to stir reverence and awe within us. Remember, what's going on with the people? Worried. What's going to happen? And God says, here's your king. And He shows them how, how glorious He is. These images point us to the majesty. And it should stir reverence in our hearts. Can I tell you something? This is not the big guy upstairs. You ever had somebody say that to you? There are not very many times I want to put people in the headlock. When they refer to God as the big guy upstairs, I'm going, man, you have no idea what you're saying. True worship begins when we stop and consider the wonder, power, and otherness, if you will, of God. That's what God is wanting us to see here. The glory and the majesty of the Lord enthroned is the, is the main truth about God that Satan wants to blind our eyes to. He doesn't want us to see this. He doesn't want us to live in light of Jesus, the Son of God, ruling and reigning in our life. Satan wants to fool us about every moment of every day of our lives. That This God you serve, He's not really that great. He's not really that glorious. <clears throat> you know how that happens? When something goes wrong in your life, what do you do? God gets put out here and everything's about you. Satan does that. That's who's... That's who's telling you that. That's who's moving your, your thoughts and your ideas away from God. That's the thing that Satan wants to do. Is he wants to move us away from our glorious and our great 
and our majestic God. Look at verse 2. It says, Above Him stood the (coughs) seraphim. Each had six wings. With two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. Now, um, no one knows with certainty what these strange six-winged creatures are. Notice I said no one knows for certainty. People guess and they talk about it, which is fine. This is the only time we see them mentioned in the Bible. They're never, they never appear in the Bible again, at least not under the name seraphim. <coughs> this word seraphim, listen to this, means fiery burning ones. Fiery burning ones. <coughs> Some people think of them as angels. Maybe they are. But given the majesty of this scene and the power of these beings, these are not chubby little babies with wings fluttering around the throne. That's not the picture that you need to be having here. These are fiery, burning, glorious ones. These seraphim are for the purpose of being heavenly attendants whose sole purpose is to pronounce the majesty and holiness of God. That's their job. That's what they're there for. Notice it says each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet... With two, he flew. These cherubims were beings without sin. They were pure, holy, without sin. They were pure, yet with their six wings, keep in mind, they're these fiery, burning, glorious ones, and they're without sin. God has created them, and they're pure. But notice what they do with their six wings. They cover their face and their feet. They shield themselves from the direct gaze of God because of their reverence and awe before the presence of a holy and majestic God. These fiery, glorious ones, they cover their face and their feet because in in this culture, covering your feet was a sign of humility. They're in the presence of God. And what is it they do? This God is too glorious. We can't even look upon Him. We, We humble ourselves. They can't look upon the Lord, nor do they feel worthy even to leave their feet exposed. They hide themselves in holy fear and reverence from the majesty of God. Here's what I want to say is making application. We make a mistake when we imagine that God's holiness, His goodness, is simply higher than that of the best human being. We cannot determine God's holiness, His goodness, by comparing Him with mankind. We cannot do that. It is impossible to do that. God's holiness, His goodness, is in a class of its own. Even the best people we can think of are flawed people. God's purity makes the sinless seraphim blush and and seek cover. These seraphim are serving God. They're, They're there for one reason. They're there to worship God. They're focused on worshiping God for how great and how glorious He is. And when they see the glory of God, what do they do? What do they do when they see the glory of God? They they worship Him. When they consider the glory of God, what's their response? They they worship, right? Now let me ask you that. Have you done that this week? Have you considered and meditated and focused upon your God and how glorious He is? And has your response been that of worship to Him? I didn't mean you had to be, you know, in the room with the worship and praise music going on and, you know, or a monk's chanting in the background or whatever to worship. I'm talking about with your life and what God has given you to do. Have you done this week? Let me ask you that. Have you done that this week? But even then, are you doing that right now? 
Is that why you come today? Did you come this morning or do you come any Sunday? Do you come here and focus on the glory of God and salvation and respond with worship? Or are you preoccupied with yourself? I think that's our problem. We come preoccupied with self and we forget about this glorious God that we have who said, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves, gather with one another and look upon me and exalt me together. Professing Christians, you come here today with the idea that this is the God you've come to worship? Think about that. This God here in Isaiah chapter 6, that's the God you've come to worship. Do you live each day with the understanding that this is your God? And somebody says, well, I thought we worshiped Jesus. Well, we do. Do we worship God? Yes. Who is this that we see here? Well, if you look closely, the first time you see the word Lord, it's capital L, lowercase o-r-d, which is the Hebrew word Adonai, which is the term used for Jesus. But if you get to verse 5, I believe it is, the Lord is in all uppercase letters, which is the Hebrew word Yahweh, which is used for God. Both words are used for the same person here, and the first word that's used is the name given to Jesus. So the, I, most Bible commentators believe this is a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ upon His throne. And how glorious is our Savior? Man, the seraphim worship Him. Do you live each day with the understanding that this picture here, this is your God? And He humbled Himself to redeem you. Look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. There's this continuous activity of these seraphim. The message of the seraphim is praising God, proclaiming God's glory, proclaiming His majesty. It is this glory that provokes these seraphim, these burning ones to sing, Holy is the Lord. What is the central theme of their worship? The holiness of God. They're calling out to one another. Notice what they do here. Holy, holy, holy is Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Notice they call to one another. Don't miss that. They call to one another. Are you, do you see that? They're calling to who? One another. Let's together... They're saying, let's us together magnify God. He's glorious. They do it together. It's a shared communal experience of the greatness of God. They're doing it together. They're calling on one another to look at this holy and glorious God. Again, is that, is that our goal to do the same here today? Do we do what is necessary to make sure we worship as best we can our glorious God? Or do we just... I'll let you fill in the blank. Is that our motive for coming here today? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This is the the first lesson of the Bible that we sinners need to hear. God is holy. What is is holiness? That would be a good question to ask. What is holiness? Well, there are two elements to holiness. The first is the idea of greatness. One of the meanings of holiness is the idea of being set apart. Greatness. God is totally above and beyond. He's in a class by Himself. 
In Exodus chapter 15, if you were to look there in verses 8 through 11, it tells us that there's a profound difference between Him and those He has created. There's a big difference between us and God. He's great, grand, and majestic. And he is awesome. So holiness points us to a picture of the greatness of God and how glorious He is. The second aspect of holiness, and the one we generally think of most, is the idea of what? Purity, right? God is good. He does what is right. He never does what is wrong. God is unstained by and uncompromising with sin. And here's what I want to say about that for us. God does not bend a little when it comes to wrongdoing. God doesn't do that. God always acts in a righteous manner because His nature is holiness. God doesn't sweep things under the rug. He doesn't wink at our sin. His wrath is upon us because of our sin. But what does God do for us out of His love? He sends Jesus to take that wrath. In the Hebrew language, there's a way in which uh, uh, comparatives and superlatives are, are uh, expressed. Now, I don't want to insult your intelligence, but English lesson. Comparative is what? Good, better. A superlative is what? Good, better, best. And so comparatives are repeated twice in the Hebrew language. Superlatives are repeated, anybody want to guess? Three times. In other words, the seraphim are expressing what is ultimate about God. It's the superlative, it's the most glorious thing about God is His holiness. There are very few occasions when the Bible elevates something in the superlative degree. And it does so by the holiness of God here, and it does it one more time in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verse 8, and there it says, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. God is not simply holy or even holy, holy. He is holy to the highest degree. Holiness is central to who God is. No, no other attribute of God is praised like this. Not love, not mercy, not justice, not sovereignty, just holy. You never read the Bible and it says God is love, 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 right? God is just, just, just. You never see that, right? The only time you see that is in relation to His holiness. Just holy. The word holy also means that God is completely free and separate from what is sinful. God is holy in thought, word, and deed. God is distinct from us. He's in a class by Himself. He has no equal. In other words, there's a profound difference between Him and those He has created. Here's what I want to say. Christian, this is your holy God. This is your Savior. Think about that. I think it's Psalm chapter 8, it says, Who is God that He is even mindful of us? Who is God that He would even think about us? Sinful. People. And yet this holy God becomes one of us, lives for us, dies for us, rises from the dead for us, so that He could save our wretched, filthy souls. Holy God does that for us. Notice the effects of the seraphim crying out, verse 4. And the foundations of the thresholds, some translations, excuse me, say posts of the door or foundations of the doorway. 
and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. The very glory and the strength of the song of praise, holy, 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 caused the doors of the temple to shake. I get myself in trouble here. Back in my... um, whatever days you want to call them. Some of you have done this. You go to a concert and they have them speakers jacked up. And you leave and three days later, your head's still vibrating because of that. Your heart's still pounding because of that. They were praising God so much that it shook the doors of the heavenly temple. One commentator said, even the dumb structures of wood and stone have the good sense to shake in God's presence. Verse 4 again, the house was filled with smoke. In the Bible, smoke is often represented as being associated with the presence of God. You see, smoke in the Bible is often associated with the presence of God. And the temple was, how much smoke was in the temple? It was full. The train filled the temple. These images here for us point us to the majesty and the glory of God. This should provoke reverence and awe in our lives. True worship begins when we stop and take in the wonder, power, and otherness of God. Worship begins when we catch a glimpse of God's holiness. And you know, I think that's what's wrong in my life, in your life, in the life of our church. We've forgotten who our God is. We have completely forgotten how glorious and how holy He is. And we kind of we impose upon Him our view of what He is. Verse 5, your outline... The unworthiness of sinful man. By the way, this is one of the responses. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. Some translations say undone or ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people who... Excuse me, a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. There's that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Isaiah was confronted with the realization of God's holiness, and he became deeply aware of what? his sinfulness, and the sinfulness of the people with which he lived. That's the question I have for myself and you. Is that that what we do when we look upon the holiness of God? Do we go? Do we look at ourselves in comparison to that? Isaiah was a man of integrity, and yet he was confronted with the the understanding of of God's holiness. He became profoundly aware of his own sinfulness and the sinfulness of people around him. Isaiah's response is not that we what we would expect. He didn't say something like, wow, that's cool. Isaiah's impressed. He says, I'm undone. I'm ruined. In other words, God's holiness makes him come apart at the seams. When's the last time that happened for me? When's the last time that happened for you? As long as our gaze is fixed on this earth... We have no problem with ourselves at all. But if we contemplate who God is, we'll be broken. Security and arrogance are wiped out. Simple people are reduced to trembling with one glimpse of God. If we look to God and see Him for who He is, we'll look at ourselves and say, Woe is me. Isaiah says that. Woe is me. The idea is that of agonizing due to tragedy falling upon a person. It refers to self-condemnation. Why such a statement? Notice, for I am lost, I'm undone. To be lost or undone or ruined has the idea of being broken or or to come apart at the seams, to be unloosened. 
A psychologist would call it a nervous personal breakdown. That's what he would call it. To go to pieces. It can also refer to thinking that one is outside the meaning of life. Isaiah has not discovered that the universe is meaningless. He's he's fully aware that life has meaning, but that he is outside, unable to participate in that because of his uncleanness before a holy God. Look at verse 5 again. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The reason he's undone and outside the meaning of life is because he was what? Unclean. When seen next to the purity of God's holiness, the impurity of human sin is overwhelmingly evident. Isaiah realizes the other shock that his character is not in keeping with God's. <coughs> the first response, notice here, of an unholy person to the holiness of God should be a severe awareness of personal sin. When the unholy meets the holy, we become very conscious of our own sinfulness. And here's what I'd say as application. You know, and I put myself in this category, you and I can feel that we're doing pretty well because we compare ourselves to who? One another. Don't we? Well, I'm not like... You've said those words, right? Well, at least I ain't. When we compare ourselves to those around us, we can always spot those who seem to be worse than we are, right? There's always somebody we can find worse than us. However, when we look, when we compare ourselves to the standard of absolute wholeness, look out. If you're here today and you have no sense of your sinfulness, you have not had a true sense of the true God. If you believe that you can do good things and be right with God, you have no awareness of how deeply stained you really are. We must be undone before we can be remade. That's what Isaiah is saying here. We must be undone before we can be remade. Verses 6 and 7. God's provision for forgiveness. Once Isaiah realizes and acknowledges sin, notice what happens in verse 7. Let me say that again. Notice, once Isaiah realizes and acknowledges sin, notice what happens. What does Isaiah do? He realizes and he acknowledges his sin. What happens? One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. They had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. What does Isaiah do? He sees himself undone. And what happens once he realizes and acknowledges that? What happens? Guilt is taken away and sin is atoned for. God did not allow Isaiah to beg. Notice, Isaiah didn't have to beg. God responded in mercy. One of the seraphim take a hot coal and they touch it to his mouth. You're like, I bet that felt good. Now whether it was actually happening or if this is symbolic... I don't know. Why? Why have you... Why this picture of a burning hot coal being put on the mouth to to, to symbolize forgiveness and atonement? Have you ever heard of someone going to the doctor and having something cauterized? God cauterizes the sin of Isaiah. That's what He's doing here. Cauterization, if that's the right way to say it, is the process of... Sealing a wound or destroying abnormal or infected tissue with a heat instrument. 
If you've ever had it done, it can be rather painful as it's being done and then afterwards. God cauterizes Isaiah's lips. He, he eliminates the impurity. He, his guilt is taken away. It's, it's atoned for. The point was not to torment Isaiah, but to cleanse him. He cauterizes the lips of his servant. He forgave his sin. Isaiah's guilt's taken away, but it's, it's, not, it's not shrugged off. He doesn't sweep the sin under the rug. God doesn't say, oh, let's just forget it. Instead, he tells Isaiah that his sin is what? Atoned for. In other words, it was paid for. Isaiah, your sin has been atoned for. It's been paid for. Are some of you sitting there right now going, how? Because you know something's not happened yet, right? Who's not come on the scene yet? Jesus. How is that possible? I say it's paid for by Jesus. How can that be? Isaiah lived a hundred years, hundreds of years before Jesus. But the promise had been made and the plan was in place and Isaiah believed that. He had faith in that. God forgave Isaiah on the basis of what Christ was going to do hundreds of years later. Just like He's willing to forgive you and I on the basis of what He has done many hundreds of years before us. Isaiah says, here's what Isaiah says. He says, I fall short of the glory of God. You know what Isaiah is seeing? And he looks at himself and he says, man, I fall short of the glory of God. Does that sound familiar to you? Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall what? Short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death because you've fallen short of the glory of God, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life in who? Christ Jesus our Lord. Finding God's forgiveness for our sin begins by admitting our guilt, just like Isaiah did. To insist we're innocent when we're not leaves us condemned before God. But when we admit our sin, our guilt, and our need, what does God do? He offers grace and forgiveness. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says, If you confess your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Imagine this. If you could start your life all over today. Imagine that. If you could, today, if you could start your life all over. I'm going to tell you, you can do that. You can do that by confessing your sin and repenting of that sin and placing your faith in the sacrifice of God's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. Your life can begin new today. The way to God isn't by trying harder or by cleaning up your act. It's by faith. Faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Verse 8. The great privilege of serving God. After Isaiah sees God's glory, after he's confronted with his sin, after he finds forgiveness through the sacrifice of Christ, then he's commissioned by God. Don't miss that. There's two responses here, right? Woe is me, I'm undone. Then there's another one. Now for the first time in this passage, God actually speaks. And listen to what he says. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And what does Isaiah say? Then I said, here I am, send me. This is probably the most famous part of this verse that we, we can remember. What is Isaiah saying here? He's saying, now, 
Willing to serve God, to be a part of God's mission. I'm willing to be a part of this, God. It's not out of obligation, but out of gratitude and out of a desire to exalt the glory of God. It's about bringing other people into the kingdom, but what is motivating Isaiah to be on God's mission? God's glory. Don't miss this. God is making it clear that knowing His forgiveness is not just a fire insurance policy. It's not just a get-out-of-hell-free card. Knowing God's forgiveness in Jesus is a call to glorify God by going to the lost. And when they trust in Jesus, we grow them, we teach them to follow Jesus. That's what we do. Isaiah wants the world to know the greatness and the goodness of God. Is that what we want? That's what God wants for His church. Listen to me. That's why we're here. That is what you should want for your church. Here's how we can apply this. When you experience God's forgiveness of sin in Christ, you're to lovingly respond to that salvation by doing what God wants. In response to His cleansing, Isaiah submitted himself entirely to God's service. What does he say? Here I am. God send me. That's exactly what every Christian should do. That's exactly what we as a church should do. Here I am. Send me to my community. Here I am. Send me to those I work with. Here I am. Send me to those I go to school with. Here I am. Send me to my neighbors. But before we can carry out God's call to speak for Him to those around us, we must be cleansed just like Isaiah was. Confessing our submissions and submitting control to God. See, Isaiah was already a believer. He just recognized something in his life wasn't right, right? He was sinful. Letting God purify us will be painful. But we must be purified so we can truly present our pure and holy God. What pure and holy God is going to allow you to go dirty and stained to present Him to a lost world? God will not bless His people in His mission if we are turning a blind eye to sin. God is not going to do that. Let me finish by saying this. First, it should be obvious that there's no better way to use our time than to use it for God's glory. There's nothing better, there's no one greater or more worthy than our God of our time. He's our life, our hope, our joy to run after it and serve anything other than the Lord. Can I tell you something? It's foolish. It's a waste of your time. Look at your own heart and turn away from the trivial pursuits that occupy our life and our energy a lot of times. Second, we need to take personal holiness seriously. We spend far too much of our lives playing with sin. And I'm no exception. I find myself compromising with what is unholy far too often. Right? We push God off to the side when we feel He's getting in the way of our enjoyment or our entertainment, right? We push Him off to the side. Taking holiness seriously means significant changes in our lives. And like you, I resist those changes. However, if we understand God's mercy and grace at all, if we have a sense of God's holiness, which is becoming more and more rare in our churches, If we have any sense of God's holiness, we'll want to clean all that is sinful from our lives. 
And I say this for myself today as well as you. It's time to do a personal inventory and make some changes to our entertainment, to the use of our time, to the way we spend our money, to the way we talk, to the way we do our jobs, to the way we treat others, and that includes children and spouses, the way you worship or the lack of worship, both daily and in corporate worship. Maybe today, I'm going to ask our musicians just to come, and I'm going to ask them to once again just play. We're not going to sing. I want you staying in your seats right where you are. I want them to come and play this morning. In case you missed this, Isaiah realized that in order for a holy God to use him, he had to come clean. He had to confess and become clean before God, and then God would use him. Maybe today, as they begin to play, maybe you just come and and you just bow down at the altar and you might just do business with God. You know, when I was a boy in church, people came to the altar a lot of times. It it doesn't mean there's there's something super holy about you because you do that. I think it's a a sign of humility and brokenness to to do that. Maybe you just come today and you... You confess and you repent and ask God to do what He wants with your life. And I'm going to challenge you to do this. Maybe you ask God what He wants you to do with our church and not what you want. That's a question we need to be asking ourselves. What does God want? There's two responses. Repent and go. A vision of God's holiness requires two responses. Repent and go. Let's bow our heads. I'm going to pray and then we're just going to have a moment of silence as our musicians play. Let's just do that now, silence, and then I'll, I'll pray for us.